Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Jeremy Nicholas. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Well, I'm looking forward to talking funny today because I've got a bit of a reputation for not being able to talk funny in some occasions. So <laughs> let's see if why I can you, get this Why out. do you think you've got that reputation? Uh, it's a family reputation and it's it's stuck because I always get my punchlines messed up I'm very quick-witted with one-liners that's fine but if I try and retell a joke oh I need I need some practice I'll probably come to you another time but yes that's that's the story of my funniness or lack of yeah but I bet you are funny because anyone can be funny it's something that you can learn people think oh you're either good at something or you're not but actually you get good at stuff by practicing so it's like speaking German you know if we if I said next week I want you to interview me in German you wouldn't be very good but in a year's time you probably would be because you'd have learned German and that's the same with humor you're not born with it babies aren't funny you know they don't make me laugh babies <laughs> they well, look they, a bit like Winston Churchill that's it I was gonna say that <laughs> they all look like Winston Churchill and and yeah. whatever they do people do giggle and laugh and to get that response so yeah I think. but you, but they say that babies look like Winston Churchill, but when you give a baby the gift of a cigar, the parents are always furious. So, <laughs> you know, something to think about there. Okay, I see the tone of this whole conversation has already been set. Brilliant. Yeah, that's what, well, no, but be, because my brand is talking funny, if I wasn't funny, then you say, well, I, I probably won't go to him for some humour coaching because he seems a bit boring. So that's why I'm quite annoying in that I'll keep chipping in with ridiculous ideas like, giving a baby a cigar which I very rarely do anymore <laughs> it's frowned upon I hear so yeah it is yeah so I'm going to really struggle asking you questions because I'm too busy smiling and laughing to be able to articulate the next question there'll be lots of uh, sort of half giggled serious questions here well actually maybe we won't talk serious maybe we'll just talk funny who knows but that's that's the art of this podcast we get to do what we want how we want it because it's all about you today so that's great fun or is it funny we'll see I don't know but if you know me for more than seven years you'd be okay because I found that that's when people start saying I've, I've heard all your stuff now okay so we're in we're on safe ground today we're all good yeah I, I had a girlfriend once who said the trouble is I don't find you funny anymore <gasps> so that was nice Oh dear, that is that is, and have you, you say it takes practice, and it's something, it's a skill that you learn. But there must be an element that is natural. There's a, a an ability to have that humorous element to what you're doing. Yeah, so it's it's like you know Mozart clearly was very good at playing the piano, and you know from very early days he was brilliant. Uh, and so you can't take any child and make them into Mozart but you can make everyone better than they already are. So it's like it's like in football. Some footballers are just geniuses, like George Best or Ronaldo or somebody, and others can be really good players that can just be coached and become brilliant, like mm. Frank Lampard, you know, just really worked hard and became one of the best players England's ever had. So I used to be the stadium announcer at West Ham and where Frank Lampard began his career, and his dad played for West Ham as well, who's also called Frank Lampard. And um, there's a tea bar at West Ham at the old ground called the Frank Lampard Tea Bar, which I always used to have my tea in before a game. And then I became the announcer. And then I used to call him Frank Lampard Jr. when he first started because everyone knew his dad as Frank Lampard, who was also the assistant manager. Sorry, this is not a boring football story. There, there will be something funny coming along in a moment. And after he'd been in the team for about a year, the message came, Frank says, can you just call him Frank Lampard now when he scores a goal? He doesn't like to be called junior. So I said, fair enough, because I thought he was great. And then he joined Chelsea. And when he came back, he scored against us. And I said, goal for Chelsea, scored by Frank Lampard Jr. And everyone went, <laughs> because I think in Cockney terms, what I'd done was mugged him off, I think is the expression. You did. Is that Mockney though, really? Well, no, because I grew up in East London. I just don't sound like a Cockney because my mum was a primary school teacher and made me talk proper like what she did. 
the word I meant was is it isn't mugging off is like it's like a popular term. It wasn't a proper Cockney rhyming slang or oh, Cockney... it's not rhyming slang. No, it, no. It's, it's like doing them up like a kipper. It's a yeah. phrase. It doesn't rhyme yeah. with anything like apples and no. pears or Ruby Murray. Yeah, both my kids were born in Whitechapel, so they're proper East End kids. Okay, so do they support West Ham? Well, as a family, we do. Forever blowing bubbles. Oh, lovely. There we go. But we're mostly rugby fans, I have to say. So we're we're more that side of the, the shape ball. Oh, what a shame. And I live in Isleworth, right near Twickenham Rugby Ground, and I'd much rather watch football any day. But my wife is South African. Oh. And so often for my birthday in November, she buys me tickets to see England lose to South Africa at Twickenham. And that's my present. Well, she should just, just wait a couple of weeks and go see the bar bars. It's much more fun. It is, yeah. All good. So let's talk about what is it you do nowadays, Jim, because you're you're not doing commentating anymore. No. So I used to be uh, a news presenter and a sports presenter on BBC. I had 27 years there um, doing all sorts of things in current affairs. So commentating on live sports events, Commonwealth Games, Olympics, um, interviewing famous people. And then after a while, I just got fed up of asking the questions and thinking, well, that's not a very good answer. I could give a better answer than that. So then I thought I'd like to be the person answering the questions. So um, I left, went freelance and then sort of moved into speaking as well. And I still do the bits of TV and bits of radio. But it's uh, when I do that, it's I'm answering the questions. I want to be seen as an expert on something rather than what I did for years, asking football managers how they think they're going to do at the weekend. And they all surprisingly think they're going to win. And I know statistically that is not possible. So, yeah, I just thought it's got to be a better thing to do than that. So mainly what I do now is I help firms with communication and how to have more impact with their communication. So it might be emails, it might be internal communications, it might be presentations, pitches, but I specialize in adding humor to their message because my whole thing with humor is that if they're laughing, then they're listening. They haven't switched off. And the whole point of adding humor, so if someone's talking for an hour, after 20 minutes, the audience is getting a bit bored. But if you put a little bit of humor in, it just gives them a lift. It's like a sort of prop on a clothesline where the audience's attention span is like the clothesline sagging. And so you just put a prop in, do an audience interaction, do a funny story, do a gag. Uh, it just keeps people listening. And the, and the purpose is not to make them funny. The purpose is to get your message across. So for me, the humour is only ever the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. Yeah, I was going to say, when you started describing what you're doing, it sounded very serious, you know, helping businesses with communication. I was like, oh, sorry, have I got the wrong Jeremy Nicholas here? I thought we were talking about being funny in communication. So what made you switch to the other side of the mic, other than the fact that you said that the answers were statistically going to be boring uh, well just I think that you you know it's very easy to ask questions as you have proved Amy but you've made a bit of a success of your podcast just asking questions but it's much harder to answer them as I'm sure you realize and I think when you become an expert in something which I think I am in communication now because I've interviewed all sorts of politicians and world leaders. I used to present really serious programs on the BBC World Service. I presented The World Today, which is a proper grown-up news program where they'll say, Jeremy, we've got the Ugandan opposition leader in. Are you across that story? And I'll say, yes, that's fine. And I'll interview them. So I've done all of that stuff. Um, and I just think the standard of communication in business is so dire. You know, with public speaking at conferences, I started by being the MC, and I would introduce speakers, and I just think, well, they're rubbish. You know, this this. I'm not talking about professional speakers. I'm talking about corporate speakers, speakers in organisations, and they would put on a massive event at, you know, posh London hotel. They pay a fortune to fly people from all over the world, and then they just deliver. And I think you could have just emailed them that. That was rubbish. Why have you spent all that money? And so I started saying to speakers, uh, do you want me to help you make that a bit more interesting? <laughs> you know, in the coffee breaks. And some of them were furious. And some of them became my first ever clients. And there was one particular event I did in Dublin, a three-day event, and they'd flown people in from everywhere. And the chief exec was just dull. And I said... He said, well, do you have any advice on how we can make this better next year? And I said, yeah, make your talk more interesting, because honestly. And he said, well, I'm glad you said that, because no one's ever told me that before. Because no one ever tells the boss they're not very good, because they're worried about their job. 
Um, but there's so many little techniques that you can do that will just mean that people will hang off you everywhere and they'll lean in. So it's all about making people lean in to, to listen more rather than just sit back and think, oh, how much longer is this person going on for? So you're the Sheryl Sandberg in the in the communication funniness world. Am I? Humor. <laughs> you're leaning, encouraging people to lean in. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Sheryl Sandberg, right. Yes, I was thinking of Sheryl Cole. <laughs> I thought, has she married a different footballer called Sandberg? Yes. No, she's the lean-in lady. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so I think, and I, I don't want to have a go at blokes, but particularly white middle-aged British blokes think that the best way to communicate is just to shout and talk down. And actually, sometimes if you're soft-spoken, so that people actually have to lean in a little bit, and you're not just talking about yourself and ranting, you're actually giving some information that the audience could benefit from, then they will listen. So with your 27 years of speaking to world leaders and politicians and, and footballers mm. or sports sporting heroes, mm. what is it that took you and was it your purpose or was what was it that made you transition yeah well I actually did my first paid speaking event in 1994 so for 20 years I ran the broadcasting alongside the speaking um and but I think just I wanted control of my own destiny uh the the, the thing that made me leave the BBC and go freelance that made me sort of pick my ball up and say, I'm not playing anymore and I'm taking my ball with me, was that I wanted to do uh, a voiceover for Maynard's Wine Gums. And the BBC said I couldn't do it because they wouldn't let a staff person be the voice of Wine Gums on ITV. And so I said, well, I am going to do it. And so I left to do that. And I got quite a nice little series of voiceovers. And I became the voice of FIFA, the FIFA video game, which is the best-selling video game in the world in the football area. And I'm the voice of 11 different games from FIFA 06 up to FIFA 16, which is considered quite prestigious when I'm particularly in South Africa in a restaurant. And uh, my wife usually tells the waiter, he's the voice of the FIFA gamer. And then I get a whole load of different waiters and customers coming over saying, can you say goal for Manchester United scored by, and they all support Manchester United or Liverpool. I've never met anyone abroad that supports West Ham. But it's just exciting. And if if anyone, uh, do, do you have children that play FIFA? Uh, my son does, yes. Right. He'll be very excited to know this. I didn't know this about you. So okay, what's his, I've just, what's I'm just name? scoring some points. His name's Eddie. Eddie Rowlinson. And what team does he support? You know, at the moment, he do, I don't think he does. Well, let's say so, England. So, okay, yes. So this little bit's for him. Goal for England scored by Eddie Rowlinson. And he'll say, that's not the voice of the FIFA game because he'll have played some game from FIFA 17 onwards and I'm only 06 up to 16. Oh, Oh well, well, it, it sounded great anyway. Well, I'll just say that he was—he uh, he forgot that bit when he was playing when he was younger. No, it's all good, all good. So, putting the sort of ball metaphor aside and the Maynard wine gums aside, mm. what have been the moments that you've really enjoyed? In my broadcasting career, I really enjoyed working at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. I really enjoyed the uh, Paralympics when with two days notice I became the athletics commentator for the whole world for the Paralympics. So there's a thing called the global feed and the global feed is provided by the Olympic movement, uh, all Olympic games and all Paralympics as uh, a commentary that anyone can use for free. So obviously, you know, all the TV companies all come over with their commentators to feature the big races and big swimming events that involve their athletes. But there's not room for everyone to be inside that stadium. So there'll be a generic commentary that's provided. And the person who was doing the athletics went sick. And so I got called in. I didn't know anything about Paralympic sport, really. And I literally just had to mug up on it in a couple of days and then do my best. Uh, so I was very... And was that for the 2012? That was 2012 in London, yeah. And all the while, I mean, I was so worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, I remember talking about uh, in uh, Oscar Pistorius running the last leg for South Africa in the relay. I thought, can I say that last leg? He hasn't got any legs. Is that allowed? And uh, that was fine. And there were there were a few other things. I, as I, I never did get told off by anyone, 
but someone got told off. One of the other commentators got told off because someone won a gold medal and uh, they said it was tragic that he'd lost his leg in an accident. And the Paralympic organisers said, we don't regard it as tragic, otherwise he wouldn't have won the gold medal. And I, and with the other commentators, we did have a drink afterwards and we did say, I think probably he would think it was still quite tragic. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have my leg than the gold medal, but that wasn't the message. So. It was definitely a question for the programme, the last leg, to ask them that exact question. I, absolutely. I absolutely love that spin-off. That was so good. And I still watch it now. It's fantastic. Yeah. See, now that's the name of a programme. But in these pioneering days of 2012, I just thought, can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? So, yeah, I was yeah. quite proud of doing that, commentating on FA Cup finals. Uh, I was quite proud to go on the pitch at Wembley before West Ham's playoff game against Blackpool and uh, talk to Trevor Brooking on the pitch, so Trevor, and then get the crowd singing I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles behind the goal. That was quite a big moment. Uh, introducing Tony Blair to the crowd at Twickenham when I was the stadium announcer there was quite exciting and he got booed. And then I introduced Miley in class from Hearsay and she got cheered. Quite a contrast. Mm. Um, I just... I've always quite liked doing the panel game. So I was on Sandy Toxwick's team on Call My Bluff a couple of times. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and I did a show called Noel's Telly Years. They did a sort of celebrity version of that. And I beat Emlyn Hughes and Gemma Craven from, do you remember Gemma Craven, Slipper in the Rose, the Cinderella story? I remember Emlyn Hughes. Yeah, I, from Liverpool. Yeah. And Craven, any relation to John Craven? No. No, okay, well. No, she didn't. Know, have a, she didn't have a paper round. She was she was Cinderella in a thing called Slipper in the Rose. She was very good, but not as good at television trivia as me and Emlyn. Brilliant. So, did you set yourself up to be a broadcaster? Was this your plan from day one? No, not at all. Um, so, as a kid, I liked music and I liked football and I liked commentating on Sibutio football matches and in the summer, uh, just to get some fresh air, Sibutio cricket matches but still indoors so that's clearly a hilarious line about fresh air <laughs> so i've never never said that before so it's, if, if it makes me laugh it's because i've not never heard it before um yeah and i remember you know i i was good at maths and i was good at english and history uh but i really liked history and the stories um but the teachers said oh we need engineers now so i got steered to doing maths physics chemistry a level even though english and history were my best subjects uh, and then I went off to do engineering at university which is a bit weird I didn't really have any ambition to be an engineer and it was so boring that in my spare time I started doing student radio because I felt like I needed some creative outlet and just I think some people like equations and working things out and proving things and I like stories so I started doing student radio and that went really well. And the guy who did the show before me on student radio was Martin Roberts, who went on to present Homes Under the Hammer on the television. So it was quite a hothouse of broadcasting talent. And <laughs> then uh, from that, in my final year, I, I had a sponsorship with British Steel and I was working in, my, in the summer before my final year in their research centre in Corby in Northamptonshire, collapse testing North Sea oil pipelines. And I thought to myself, there has to be something more exciting than this. I can't spend the next 40 years collapse testing North Sea oil pipelines to try and work out a better metallurgical formula so that they can go deeper and deeper into the ocean without the pipes collapsing. And I thought, I can't face that, surely. So uh, I started doing stuff on the local radio station. And then um, after, in my final year, I applied to do a postgrad in radio journalism and got in and then went and did that. And honestly, I enjoyed that one year more than the previous four because I I was enthused by it. You know, I, I, I not only knew the answers, I had some extra things. And at the end, I was the annoying one where the teacher's wanting to go, saying, does anyone have any questions? And everyone's packing up and I'm going, yes, a couple of things. And I, I thought, God, that was, if I'd done English or history at university, that's what, that would have been lovely all the time. But anyway, I then found the journalism and loved it. So you had a choice that you could have chosen to do English and history, but you trusted, who was it, teachers? Was it family? Teachers, yeah. They all said, oh, it was 1980, and they said, we need engineers. The You know, people would say things to me like, oh, well, you don't want to do history. That's just about learning about stuff that's already happened. 
and you know we need engineers and so it was almost like i was going off to war or something to help the country out doing this engineering and i came back after the first year and said i don't like my course i'd like to change to something no 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 that'd be a waste wouldn't it you need to do this so yeah teachers it's a shame and you you see this sort of steering towards different routes whereas not actually listening to the natural calling that you have so you, you spent that time obviously mechanical engineering wasn't your thing journalism broadcasting was your thing what what sort of took you forward what sort of drove you into that space because was there a particular moment no not really um i remember that i i consciously made the decision that i needed to do stuff that was more interesting and exciting and so i decided um i tried my hand out at doing a bit of drama um and i remember so I was at Bradford University and at Bradford University, there's a place called the Theatre in the Mill and it's and you had to go down all of these steps and it was just outside the library. And, and I walked down the steps to the theatre at the bottom, just talk, turn up and say, I, I'd like to be in something. And I knew they'd say, what well, course you and I say engineering and they go, we don't really have many engineers. And I walked halfway down the steps and then turned around and went back up again. And I thought, no, you need to go down there. So I walked down again and I got about a third from the thing. And then, no, you've got to go a bit further. And on the third time, I knocked on the door. Yeah, I knocked on the door and they let me in. And no one, of course, nobody said, you can't come in, you're an engineer. And of course, there were loads of engineers already in there. It's just, It was just my limiting belief that you had to be on a social sciences course or be in modern languages or something to do the theatre. So, uh, yeah, I did that, did a couple of plays, realised I quite liked it, but I could could never remember the lines and then I thought well I'll just I started doing the radio and you make that as you go along so I thought well that's perfect it's like doing theatre but you write your own script as you go along and is, is it, it is a tricky one remembering lines because I'm I can't remember lines very well I I much prefer being in a natural space and in the moment it's it's easier I like preparing but I'm not I just I just don't have that retention that ability to retain huge chunks of of lines so I don't think I I remember being a child was really struggling with school plays with that and I think what I found is that I'm quite good off the cuff and it's um I don't get any better with practice <laughs> that's the thing you know some people can just practice over and get really really good I'm quite good to start with I don't get much better so when I I remember being in a sort of spoof of Star Trek a comedy review about Star Trek it was called starstruck the search for spock's ears and i inexplicably jumped from scene three to scene five i was captain kirk and everyone just looked at me like what have you done there and i just got us back to scene three with a few ad libs but it scared the life out of everyone and i thought oh that's quite good but i could see that um i wasn't really a team player because <laughs> everyone else was just sticking to what it was so since then, I've done a lot of improv, and I love improv because you're making it up as you go along. And I don't know if it's because I'm lazy that I don't like to learn things, or if I just enjoyed the fun of making it up. Has humour always been a part of you? Was it something as a child you you always gravitated towards? Yes. So I'd always read the Beano and the Dandy and Wizard and Chips and things like that, and even at a very young age, dad would let me stay up and watch Monty Python's Flying Circus as long as I was in my pyjamas with my dressing gown on and a glass of milk and an orange. And I ran upstairs as soon as it finished. Otherwise, mum would be after me. And yes, yeah, so I just grew up watching the two Ronnies and Porridge and all those sort of comedies, The Good Life, um, Reggie Perrin. And I used to, I remember dad... Um, one Christmas brought the family a, a, whole, a present as a whole and it was a tape recorder, just a, a cassette deck, record and play with a microphone and some C90 cassettes that would record 45 minutes each side. And I recorded the two Ronnies and I just learned all the routines and then went to school and performed the routines. And that was great. And I, I you know, I, I still knew them years later. Um, so much so that when I met my wife, who's South African, 
I realised that they didn't have British television in South Africa because there was a a cultural boycott because of apartheid. So the BBC and ITV wouldn't sell their programmes to South Africa, so they only had American telly. So I could use jokes from Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett to woo my wife before she realised they weren't mine. Oh, I love that. And in terms of using it in business and and the mission behind how helping business people become more mm. attractive to their audience, how do you help people to not sort of overstep that mark? Because there is always a line in humour. Yeah. So I think one of the things you want to show them how to do it, but the big thing is telling them what not to do. Because you must have been at events where somebody has decided to print out some jokes off the internet and they're sort of Tommy Cooper style jokes and drop them in. Well, that's never going to work. Or they'll say things that are just not appropriate. Um, I, I was at a, a conference just before lockdown and a speaker from the stage said, um, we didn't have paedophiles in my day. We had to buy our own sweets. And I just thought, what in what world would that be an appropriate thing to say? Why on earth? And I just thought, if I was, I was the MC, but if I'd been in the audience, I I would think, well, I'd never want to do business with that man. Why on earth would he think? You know, there's a lot of people that say stuff that they've heard somebody at the golf club say, and other people laugh, so they think it will be all right in a corporate environment, and it's just not. You know, and they say things that are sexist or homophobic or and they think, oh, I know you're not meant to say it, but. And I always think, well, it's not that you're not meant to say it. It's that we would hope you wouldn't even think it. And the number of times I've seen people completely destroy any chance of building rapport by saying stuff that's just completely inappropriate. Yeah. And, and that whole world of banter, you know, is, is dissipating, you know, and, and rightly so, because it's just not acceptable. No, absolutely. So a lot of the stuff I'll work with them and say, well, I, I wouldn't say this. And when you said that, it did sound a little bit, so probably don't. And they look at me as, as though I'm woke and I'm PC or something. And I'll go, you, you know, it's not in their mind. It's like, I know we shouldn't say it, but. And I always say, just don't say it. Don't even think it. And sometimes I do think that I'm sort of... Um, making them better than they are and actually if they are thinking these things i shouldn't be helping them it's like if i'm working with politicians giving politicians media training if they're going to give some interviews i'll always think they seem you know this if they're dreadful people should i help them to appear to be nicer or should i just let them be dreadful so that people don't vote for them but i have i've worked with all three major political parties helping their people come across better but I, one party, I do it for slightly less, but I won't tell you which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, I mean, it is really important, the humour, because at the end of the day, it's its a physiological benefit that we have when we are laughing. It's its not just, you know, to, to attract people to wake them up or prop them up in the middle of that washing line where they're sagging a bit in their talk. It's more than that. Yeah, I think so. its its um, It's hard to be angry with something if you're laughing at it. So it's something that, say, in, in the Second World War was used a lot. You know, in the East End of London, there would be lots of jokey stuff, you know, songs about Hitler only having one testicle, you know, when actually I think he probably had two. You know, and there's no evidence that one of them was being stored in the Albert Hall. And why would it be in the Albert Hall anyway? That's not a museum. It would probably be in the Science Museum. So, but that was a way of, you know, people were scared. And so to make it all right and so that the I don't know if the children would sing it but I suspect they would you know it would be like we can mock that person and then and then they're not as scary um and it it happens in, in all sorts of situations when we're in adversity humor is a great leveler it brings people together you know if you're laughing with people then you get you're more likely to like them so it's a great way of bonding and People always say, oh, I don't think you should use humour, you know, in serious situations. That's exactly when you should use it, because not only does it bond you together as a group, but also it gets rid of all the nervous tension and the worry. It's a great relaxer. You know, there's nothing better than a laugh to get rid of your tension. So that's why people on a Friday night will go to the comedy store in Leicester Square in London, they'll have a drink, they'll laugh with their mates and nothing seems so bad. And that's why 
you know, courts have always had jesters. There's always people with funny things that will just make everything seem a little bit better and poking fun at politics and poking fun at the things that are happening of the day. But you have got to be sensitive. So um, I, I have a programme at the moment with a group of speakers and uh, I challenge them to do something funny about COVID, which obviously uh, is, you've probably heard of it. It's been in the news quite a lot for the last year. And I think it's okay to do jokes about wearing masks and about not being able to see people and those sort of things, but nothing about people dying. So it's you've got to pick the angle of it. You know, if you do stuff about people dying, chances are someone is going to know someone who's died of COVID and then they, they, they're not going to be, they're going to be put off by it. But so just, you've just got to pick which bits to go for. And I think, I think that, I think it's a great way of, um, of bonding and bringing people together. And they say that we do business with people we know, like, and trust. The greatest way to get people to like you is to make them laugh or make them smile. And I always say a laugh is the shortest distance between two people. I like that. That's I really like that. So is there a bigger mission behind what you're doing? Is there is there a, a plan for you to bring humour to more people? Well, I think my mission is to make conferences more bearable, to make people not feel how uncomfortable the seating is. Because if you've got a really good riveting speaker, you don't notice that it, your chair is very uncomfortable. But if they're boring, then, oh, for heaven's sake. So I'm on a mission to make conferences more exciting. And some of that is humour. Some of it is storytelling. Some of it is don't have such dull slides. Some of it is don't go on for so long. You know, I hate it when people speak for an hour. I think do 20 minutes, 20 minutes of questions, and then let's have 20 minutes extra for coffee. You know, that. so all of those things, I just think we're, we're stuck in this rut in communication where everyone does it the way we've always done it. And that is standing up with one person talking and they've got some dull slides behind them go back to the days of overhead projectors and their charts with too much information on. I think, just tell us a story that will resonate with us, make us laugh, and then and we'll think, ah, I'll remember that tomorrow. Because the other thing about humour is that it anchors a story in your memory. Because, oh, well, what was that thing that said that was funny? Oh, yeah, and then you'll repeat it the next day to someone else and you've passed it on. So the humour and the story, it's almost like nectar and pollen and bees you know, the, the, you're attracting them into your flower because they're after the pollen, but then inadvertently they're spreading it. So you're you're attracting people into your story because it's funny and it makes them want to spread it and tell someone else because it was funny. And they, they think, oh, I'll get the, the kudos of the, the laugh myself. And you, But you're spreading your message. And in, in spreading your message, is it a case of when you are retelling a story that it's, that it's a context, it's the moment that sets up the humour or is it that it can be portable and you can take it into different spaces yeah well i think portability is the main thing and that's why it has to be easy to remember and the, the trouble is it does become like chinese whispers and people get things wrong so someone told me the other day um i'm trying I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember how wrong it was because i know what it is uh, <laughs> um i know what the real answer is so yeah how do you make lady gaga cry poker in the face and I thought, yeah, I know what it should be. It should be how do you make Lady Gaga cry poker face? Because she had a song, Poker Face, but she didn't have a song called Poker in the Face. So people always get it just slightly wrong. The more, And that's why you've got to make it very easy for them to carry across. So as a kid, one of my favourite jokes when I was 10 was, I don't know if you ever read the Beano or any comics where they had those funny books and it would be Haunted House by Hugo First, that sort of thing. I can see that you, you did read that sort of thing. And my favourite one was 50 Years in the Saddle by Captain Sawbum. And I thought that was hilarious uh, until the next day I heard a big kid in the playground say 50 Years in the Saddle by Major Bumsaw. And I thought, well, that makes much more sense because Captain, they were, people were literally laughing because I was saying bum. And Major Bumsaw made your bum. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's amazing how people get things just slightly wrong. And if, you, if you're worried, so you said you have a reputation in your family for not getting the laughs, 
it's I always think it's a bit like volleyball. If you think when you're playing volleyball, you set it up. So if someone pushes it up high and then someone else comes in and spikes it, punches it over. And so that's in comedy terms, that's set up and punchline. And there's only two things that can go wrong. You get your setup wrong or you get your punchline wrong. Um, and so if you're not getting a laugh, it's because there's some bit of information you've missed out of your setup or your punchline's not quite in the right order or it's not punchy enough or you haven't put the funny bit right at the end. A number of times I see speakers that will put the funny bit in the middle and then say a few other words afterwards. And because of that, people stop laughing because they think there's more to come. And it's, you know, someone will say something funny and they'll go, yes, yeah, so that happened. And everyone's thinking, is this going to be something else? No, that's just nothing. So you've always got to slide to the end, the funny bit, pause, full stop, have a glass of water, wait for them to laugh. And even if you go wait two hours, eventually they will laugh. Yeah, absolutely right. And and when I think about it, it's it's often they sort of turn to me and say, oh, that was really funny because it's a quick wit one liner that I've responded in as opposed to the whole volleyball play. Yeah, short is always better. I'm five for eight. <laughs> I was going to ask you what the favourite jokes are, but it never really works like that, does it? You have to be, some, you can't just sort of set someone up like that and say, tell us your fun, funniest joke. No, and also I don't really do jokes. I do funny no. lines and I do yeah. stories. And when I do my Talking Funny for Speakers program, my first week one is don't tell jokes, tell stories. Because jokes put your audience under pressure because they might not get it. They might have heard it before. They might not think it's funny. If you do a funny line, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it's meant to be funny, if they get it, they'll laugh. If they don't, it's fine. So we just take that pressure off to take away the expectation. But the number of times I'll see people at events saying, I heard a very funny story the other day. And I'll think, why would you say that? Because instantly the audience folds their arms and goes, well, we'll be the judge of that. But it's much better just to put it in normally. If they don't get it, fine. If they do get it, brilliant. And, and there's 10% of people that will never get anything. They just don't have a funny bone and another 10% that will laugh at pretty much anything. And then there's of the 80% left, 40% of those will laugh if they like it. And the other 40% will laugh, but only if somebody else starts laughing because they want it's need, they need it confirmed. They think it's funny, but they're not quite sure. So they'll just wait to see if anyone else laughs. And what you've got to make sure is that your 10% which I call the fire starters, you know, you've got some fire starters in the room. So um, I do a lot of events with the professional speaking association. So I want Mark Lee in the front row there because he has a really good laugh on Emma Sutton in the front row there. And, and there's a few other people that I might want there and there. And what you then do is when you get little bits of laughter from those areas, you then put the full attention on those as though they're, on, on a barbecue and you're, they're the fire starters and you're throwing paraffin on and then it the the flames will spread around the room but bear in mind 10 percent won't laugh at anything ever because not everyone has a sense of humor no oh, it's, it's really interesting and so you can't please everyone is what you're saying yeah and yeah. and also you're more likely to make people laugh if you don't appear not to be trying so if you've and when i'm working with business owners on on their key message if they look like they've deliberately tried to put some funny lines in people will think oh they think they're clever but if they have some funny lines that they put in that they appear to have just made up so they're chatting and it's like, oh this has just occurred to me then they'll love it and the secret is saying the funny lines as though it looks as though you've just thought of them because then particularly British audiences, and it's it, humour is different all across the world, but particularly British audiences like it when you seemingly effortlessly keep coming up with stuff. And I, I used to do a programme on ITV where I would interview comedians at a different comedy club each week. And I remember interviewing one comic really early on, and I said, how much of your stuff is the same every night? And he said, all of it. It's all exactly the same every night. Why I write 20 minutes and then I do it for a year. Why why would I can you imagine how much work it would be if I did a different 20 minutes each night? And I thought, well, yeah, of course. If you think about it, of course that's true. You know, if you go and see an actor, they don't change their lines. So why would a comedian? 
And obviously some are very good at the banter that they might do at the start and at the end, but the bulk of it will be the same every single time and they'll deliver it in exactly the right order because they've worked out what is the right order to get a laugh. It's the only thing I'm serious about is comedy. <laughs> I get a bit like a lecturer and I apologise for that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and do you feel that this is your space? This is where you're going to remain for the rest of your years? Yeah, I think so. I think it took me a long time to get here. I think if I'd done English and history and gone to Cambridge and got in with the footlight set and, you know, the Monty Python, David Mitchell ones, I'd have been flying rather than going to some grim northern city to do engineering. And, you know, no one had aspirations to do funny stuff. Um, I think on the Venn diagram of life where you've got humour as one big circle and business as another big circle there's a very little narrow bit that's the crossover between humour and business and that's where I sit and I've done stand-up comedy and I know that I'm not funny enough and the reason I'm not funny enough is because I don't care enough about making them laugh because once I've made them laugh I want to find another way a different way of doing it and I've no the thought of doing the same 20 minutes every night drives me mad so that's why I've always liked radio where you're making up as you go along. Um, but what I do like is information and education. And uh, my mum's a teacher, my big sister's a teacher. Both my godmothers were teachers. And I think I'm really a teacher, but um, I, I can't, I've always liked to make it humorous. So in my days as a television news reporter, I I would like to say, you know, the, the ideal thing is you turn up at an event, you say, here, something has happened earlier before we were here. Something was happening. I'm here now talking to people that watched whatever it was happening and back to you in the studio. And I'd always think if I could just find a little bit of twist on the words that would just uh, for some people watching would think, oh, he's thought about that. That's quite clever. That's quite funny. And I always think there's not being funny and being clever are very similar and I, I don't like the form of comedy where it's just gutter level I think there's, there's some writers that I will read and I just think oh I love what you've done with that you know Alan Bennett with with his stuff I really like or um Tina Fey 30 Rock and and you just think yeah that's you can't teach that that is just natural talent and I I I liked to do that in reporting and sometimes they say yeah Jeremy we don't really need that when you're doing I remember once I did a report on terror at an airport and they said because I usually was given the and finally story which would be the less serious one they said we were waiting you know people weren't really trusting you when you did the terror at the airport story because they were waiting for the funny line and I said well like I didn't think it was appropriate and they went no it wasn't and we're glad you didn't but we all kept thinking when's he going to do the funny line so yeah I think that I have found my area I'm not I'm not funny enough to be a comic and I don't want to be and I do always want the message to be more important than the humor but I I do think the humor is vital and it is the icing on the cake and it's that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down and the thing is you don't it's quite a, I always think you once you found your niche you know when you're there when first of all it's lucrative you can earn a lot of money from it and secondly when you don't it doesn't feel like work that's the thing so i've done comedy shows at the edinburgh festival where 27 nights in a row i've done the same show for an hour and you don't earn money and usually you lose money because you know there's too many people there too many shows being put on there were three and a half thousand shows on in 2019 at the Edinburgh Fringe, 3,548 different shows you could have seen over the, that festival. Um, and some people, they, that's just what they want to do. And it's not just what I want to do. So, um, but you, you can earn good money if you solve a problem for somebody. And the problem that I solve is that a lot of business speakers are very boring. And, they, the, and the thing is 90% of them have no idea and there's only a very small percentage that will ever do anything about it because they don't have any idea. And they also, they don't like the idea of someone saying, I can make you more entertaining. But those ones that are enlightened enough to know that they need it, they will pay handsomely for it. And so now I am in that area where I think, well, I can earn good money and I don't really have to think about it. 
So, so far today, I've had two sessions with people where they've presented their talks to me and I've said, what you could do is put this here, swap that round, and I don't even need to think about that. It's just obvious to me. And I think that's when you know you're doing your right thing. Um, you know, and I work a lot with professional speakers and I say, you know, when you're doing the right thing, when the stuff that you're telling people seems obvious to you and yet they write every single thing down. And so that's how I know I found my niche now, which is information and how to make it humorous. Yeah, edutainment, as you said, you know, you're blending the education with the entertainment. And, yeah. and yeah. I love the way that you play on your words. You know, it's very clever, very witty and really interesting and quirky. It's it's fun. Do I play on my words? Mm. That's a very yeah. British thing, actually. In, in, in studies of humour across the world, Brits love puns. And the trouble with a pun is that if you do it early on in a presentation, people groan. <sighs> and you can never recover from a groan. So I always say, if you're going to use puns, use them in the second half once you've already had a few safe laughs. Maybe I'll rephrase that. It's more that you're attentive with words, that you play with them as, a t as opposed to play on words, if that yeah. makes sense. I think that, that might well be it, yes. Yeah, you're good at playing with words to make them more effective. Yeah, I think so. And I, I write a, a newsletter once a week and I always, the last thing I do is the headlines and I always think what would be a funny thing there that will sum up the story but also makes people want to read it. And all of... All this humour stuff is really, it's like a peacock strutting around in front of a peahen displaying its feathers saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's all the humour is in that I coach people. It's a way of saying, look at me, listen to me. Don't, no, don't, don't turn away. Please buy my stuff because I'm going to tell you something funny. And then when you're laughing, you'll inadvertently decide to sign up for something. That's all it is really. It's just showing off, but in a self-deprecating way often. Because if you're ever not getting a laugh, just make the joke about yourself. And it always works. You know, if I'm, if I'm speaking in um, South Africa, there's no way I'm going to have a go at South Africans. But if I have a go at Brits, they'll love it. You know, if I'm, if I'm in Leeds, I've always got to talk about, oh, in London, we do this. And they'll go, oh, I bet they do do that in that London. But if I go up there and say, oh, I can't believe up here you do this, you're mad, you lot. They'll all, they'll all hate me. So you've always got to turn it on yourself. Yeah, know your audience. And that's a, a great sort of way to sort of finish. How would you, how how would people get in contact with you, Jeremy, if they realised suddenly now, having listened to you, that their talk is really boring? Yeah, so I wanted to write a book called The Boring Speaker's Handbook. And my mastermind group talked me out of it. And I still think that would sell because they said no one would want to take to a till a book called The Boring Speaker's Handbook because they no one likes to admit they're boring or they might think it's a manual on how to be boring. Uh, I don't know why I've suddenly mentioned that. But it just popped into my head. How to get in touch with me. So jeremynicholas.co.uk. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse. I run a club on Clubhouse called Talking Funny. Um, and... Yeah, the, the main reason to get in touch with me is if you need some speaker coaching, if you need some uh, mentoring as a professional speaker, if you need any media coaching. So this is uh, a thing I do where people are going to go on TV or radio and talk about something. I'll say these are the 10 questions they're most likely to ask you. I do a lot of stuff with authors on that, all dating back to the days when I used to do the afternoon show on BBC London. And I interviewed a famous novelist, and she's famous now, but this was her first novel. And my opening question was, so tell me, what's your book about? And she said, oh, you've caught me on the hop a bit there. And I just thought, what? How can that have caught you on the hop? That's the most general question. So I said, so tell me about the, um, the main character in your book. And she said, oh, which one were you thinking of? And of course, I hadn't read the book. I had six guests a day, five days a week. So I just, that is that media training. So yeah, speaker coaching, humor coaching media training emceeing if if we ever get back to being able to go out to events and then the keynoting is the big one on communication with impact and humor fantastic and do you have some final words for us jeremy some final words on what <laughs> i'm sorry should i should i've brought this to some kind of neat conclusion well i just want to say uh, let me let me take it to a nicer conclusion than that yeah do that nicer a nicer one yeah. because that's a bit of a tricky one <laughs> No, I can think up some closing words. Um, 
if you're ever worried about speaking, don't, because the best speakers are the ones that worry. I still get nervous every single time. If you're an introvert, don't worry, because the best speakers are introverts. And I still would consider myself an introvert, even though I sound very cocky. But I, I, I would, you know, I would hate going up to someone in the car park at Tesco saying, "Have you got a pound coin I could borrow for the trot?" I just wouldn't. I'd be absolutely mortified. So uh, don't worry about anything like that. And just if you think, should I use humour in something? Just try it and see what happens. What's what's the worst thing that could happen? And I think just try it. And if it's not for you, don't do it. You know, and a lot of people come to me and say, "Um, I'd, I'd like some help with stuff, but I'm just not funny." Uh, and I say, well, well, don't try them. Don't do it. <laughs> it's not for everyone. But I think it is a, I think it's a real superpower that you can learn. And I would encourage everyone to learn it. So I just want to say thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed all the different elements that you've shared about talking funny. And I am definitely going to commit myself to adding humor into my presentations. You'll be very pleased to hear. And if anyone would like to come on my Talking Funny programme, I do it four times a year. And my next one's actually starting on April Fool's Day, which is, uh, you'd think, oh, he's obviously picked that because of that. No, it's just, they just always start on Thursdays. And it's a six-week programme. You get 12 five-minute videos to watch. There's an online mastermind group, six exercises to do in your own time. And six times on a Thursday at 6 p.m. UK time, um, we come together and people try out the stuff that they've written as a result of the exercise I've given you. Um, so yeah, talking funny for speakers and you can find details for that on jeremynicholas.co.uk. Fantastic. And do you have some final words for the audience, please? Yes. Uh, just bear in mind that humour is not the be all and end all. It's just an end to a means and it's it can help people remember your message and like your message. And they're more likely to do business with you if if they've enjoyed what you've done. So it's it's just a way of getting people to listen to what you're doing. And that that's all it is. It's just a bit of fun, but it's it's really, really powerful. And I think it's much more so this century than the last century, which, which was so stuffy. Now, people have such short attention spans. Give them a bit of humour and you've got them. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrollinson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.